Welcome inside the war room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. This one's actually been in the hopper for a month now, a little bit over a month. Um, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus came on actually the day that the uh, Epstein's uh, Maxwell case, whatever, uh, the jury verdict, it broke right before this happened, and she testified in that trial. So it's kind of weird. You, you, you'll hear I talked to her about it a little bit, but she had to have the verdict rendered before she could talk about it, and so it's kind of a weird thing. Um, anyways, so if that, if you got to catch on to that, that's kind of why we didn't focus on it more. I come across Dr. Loftus. Um, if you remember, we had on John Ziegler a few episodes back. We'll link to that in the show notes. And he has investigated the um, Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno thing. And he obviously believes that Joe Paterno, uh, not Joe Paterno, but Sandusky is innocent. And I heard about uh, Dr. Loftus on that program first. So anyways, so without further ado, let's get to Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who is a distinguished professor at the University of California, Irvine. She teaches in the area of psychology and law. She received her PhD in psychology from Stanford and as she published over 20 books and over 600 scientific articles, many which focus on the malleability of human memory. Her research has been recognized with seven honorary doctorates and an election to the National Academy of Sciences. She has consulted or testified in many legal cases, including those involving McMartin Preschool, the Oklahoma bombing, Michael Jackson, Martha Stewart, Scoober, Scoober, Scooter Libby, to name a few. And I mentioned, obviously, um, I don't know if she testified in the Sandusky trial or not, but uh, was also did, did testify in the Maxwell trial. So without further ado, here is Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Well, Professor Loftus, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Um, good. Thank you. My pleasure. So we were chatting here offline, and I first come across you um, listening to the Benefit with the Benefit of Hindsight podcast with John Ziegler, who has been a guest on the show before, and you were talking um, on that, for the, those who aren't familiar, about the Jerry Sandusky case um, and repressed memory and, and all that. It was, it was really a fascinating discussion. So maybe uh, we read your bio in the intro, but maybe kind of unpack a little bit about your work and, and what you do. And just for the listener's benefit, I'm going to link to some TED Talks, uh, a TED Talk and then another uh, interview I've seen you do that will kind of go in more in depth into your, your background. But, but maybe unpack a little bit more about the kind of work that you've done over your career. So I am an experimental psychologist. I have been studying memory for many, many decades now. I uh, do experiments in which um, we look at how memories get distorted when people are exposed to some new information or some misinformation that uh, may lead them to a contamination or a transformation or, or distortion of memory. And so I study that process. And, and um, every now and then uh, I get involved in court cases where there is an issue of memory. Yeah. And so listening to some of your, your prior talks and you have a handful of books as well, um, you've talked about this idea of implanting memories, good or bad, into people's mind and it can be done. And um if I understand correctly, in the 90s, I think it was kind of these psychotherapists who were kind of um, trying to pull these repressed memories. And, and then you had these families being destroyed because they were putting memories in people's heads or what was going on there? All right. Um, 
back up just a little before that okay. uh, that period in our society, um, there were sometimes memory problems in legal cases. Uh, there could be a, a murder or a robbery uh, or whatever, and somebody has to try to testify about who did it or what happened. And uh, even back then, I and other psychologists who were studying eyewitness testimony were learning that you could um, contaminate a witness's memory by the way you questioned them or if you gave them an unfair test, uh, if the particular lineup you were using to identify a person wasn't a fair lineup, um, these could contribute to the possibility of a wrongful conviction based on faulty memory. And, and, and so then what we saw uh, more in the 90s was a, an altogether more extreme kind of memory problem where people were, were going into therapy, maybe they were anxious or depressed or they had some kind of symptom, but the therapists, some of them were engaging in practices that led these patients to believe that they'd been uh, horribly treated, uh, traumatized, abused for a decade, and uh, allegedly repressed their memories. Uh, and many of these situations ended up leading to false accusations against family members and, um, and the destruction of, of families that had once been happy beforehand. So, okay. For those who are hearing hearing this, they gotta be they gotta be thinking. Okay, well, how is it that you could fool someone so easily into thinking that something very traumatic happened? So, is this something that happens when you talk about um, guiding someone or inserting this memory? Is this something that can happen over a short period of time, or does it take multiple instances over and over again? What is that process like? Well, in, in the experiments that I and other scientists have done, we can do it with just a few highly suggestive interviews. Um, so I could I could say to you, Ryan, that um, I talked to your your mother and found out some things that happened to you when you were five or six years old. Just like you to hear what your mother remembers. Tell us if you remember things the same way or if you don't remember it. And we might give you some true experiences, things that really did happen to you when you were a kid, according to your mother, and then some completely made up experience. Uh, in one study, a completely made up experience that you were lost in a shopping mall and you were frightened and crying and had to be rescued and brought back to your family. Or another study, you were um, nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard or you were attacked by a vicious animal. These are some of the false memories, the very rich false memories that have been planted in the minds of otherwise very healthy adult uh, individuals. Um, what happens in psychotherapy is a little bit different, but highly suggestive techniques in this problematic therapy um, were leading to people developing memories for things and oftentimes never corroborated, oftentimes even, even sometimes impossible to have happened. Okay, so if you take person... John Doe, we'll say John Doe, uh, and you insert these memories into their brain and they start remembering, or they think they remember these traumatic events that didn't happen. Can you undo that then? Like once they believe that this happened, can you undo what was done? 
Well, in the experiments, yes. At the end of, of course, all these experiments are approved by human subjects committees uh, at the universities or colleges or you know, where the research is going on. At the end, we have a phase called debriefing where we let people know what we've done. We might apologize for having to use deception. We wanna make them feel their behavior is very normal. Uh, and, and for the most part, um, many of these uh, research uh, subjects have, have been kind of fascinated and now realize that these memories are false. Out there in the real world, hundreds of patients who were led down this, this awful path to develop false memories and maybe they accused their family members or they sued them or sued their other relatives or other former neighbors or what have you. Um, a number of them now, hundreds of them have come to realize their memories are false. They've come to realize that one way or another uh, and have retracted those memories. Some of them have even sued their therapists for planting false memories and um, even gotten multi-million dollar uh, jury awards. Mm. So how, if you're, if so, listening to this going, okay, well, you, you have the ability to, well, let me come back to that. You touched on something earlier um, talking about criminal investigations. So if you have a detective who's investigating or, you know, um, interviewing a witness or a potential witness or a potential criminal or whatever, um, how important is it then, based on what you're saying, that we're videoing all of these interactions to make sure that the witnesses um, aren't, their memories aren't being reshaped by what they're told? Or can you actually tell if a witness's memory has been um, reformed or reshaped based upon what an investigator is, is uh, questioning them about? Sometimes things are recorded. There's certainly a strong um, bit of advice that uh, with suspects, you should record everything so that you, particularly so that if a suspect ends up after a, uh, a strong interview ends up expressing something that looks like a, a confession, you, you can at least determine, or at least to some extent, determine whether the nature of the interview might have contributed to a false confession. Um, the, when, when witnesses go to lineups and have to try to identify somebody who they might have seen at the scene of a crime, often those are recorded in some way, um, a video of the lineup, or at least certainly you know, a photograph Often there's a lawyer present at the lineup to make sure that nothing suggestive or nothing untoward happens that leads somebody to uh, say something that isn't accurate. So not not and 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 in many instances, if there is a recording, it it can shed light on how fair the interview was. So in these cases that you're talking about and, I, and so we've got two two things here kind of reset you've got your studies that you've done and then we have kind of these real world things where people are in therapy um have you found any correlation between when people are most likely to be uh, susceptible to uh believing something that's not true um or is it pretty much at all times if we're not aware of it it's, we're all susceptible to it 
There, there are some individual differences. There are some types of, uh, some people who are a little more susceptible to having their memories be contaminated than other people. Uh, maybe young children, a little bit more susceptible than adults. People who tend to have lapses in memory and attention, they, they often can't remember if they uh, did something or just thought about doing that thing. They might be a little bit more susceptible. Uh, people um, who are particularly cooperative people, and especially if they're low in cognitive ability, they're a little more susceptible. But I'll, I also have to say that um, even the most intelligent, educated, experienced people with whom we share this planet have, um, have developed false memories. Um, and, you know, they've, they've been confronted with them. They've been a little bit embarrassing. They sometimes have apologized for them. Um, but it, it, it's the kind of thing that can, can happen to anyone. So I'm curious if your research goes into this. So one of the things that I've thought about before is, you know, someone has said something to me, um, like in a business meeting and they kind of put me on edge, not necessarily like um, my life is threatened, but I didn't want to answer the question or I didn't want to necessarily do the thing, um, nothing illegal, nothing perverse, just, just, you know, I was in a bad spot. Um, and so you get kind of, kind of nervous, kind of scared. And so then you justify your action based upon being scared and trying to get out of a situation. But then when you look back upon it, it's hard to decipher, were you really scared and did that? Or did you do this thing because that's what you really believe was the right thing at the time? Would that kind of fall into some of what you're saying or would that be a different category? I'm not sure quite how to think about that. I, I do know what, what's coming to mind is that sometimes people will draw inferences. Yeah, and so it, it, it becomes difficult because when you're in a spot to where you, you feel a little pressure, um, and you, you're not sure what the right thing to do is looking back on it. It's kind of hard to judge, um, you know, why you did the thing that you did. And so I, th I think people, I know I've, I've done things that I've looked back on. I'm like, okay, you know, I did that, but I was really scared at the time. But the reason I said that I did it probably wasn't the reason it's probably fearful. And so you kind of have both memories there, right? So you kind of have both sides of the coin. And one is that you were scared or nervous. I say scared, not like scared for my life, but you know, in, in, a, in a bad position. Uh, but then two, you have the action that you took, which you justified uh, it being a good and right thing to do at the time. Um, and so it's kind of hard to distinguish which one of those is right. In this situation, what you're referring to is these things never happen to people, but they're um, being led to believe they did, and then they believe them. And so that's why I was curious if y'all have looked into the impact of fear with making decisions or um, you know, guiding your, how you, how you, how you re remember things. Oh, well, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about fear in particular, but it is true that people do draw inferences about what might've happened, what could have happened, what possibly happened, what probably happened. Uh, and those inferences can act like external information and you can contaminate your own memory. And that is called auto-suggestion. So how then do we go about knowing what happened, right? So uh, that's the obvious thing here. If you have someone in a court case, you have the defendant and then you have the witness, there's not a lot of evidence there. How do you know um, if it's something like a sexual assault or a rape or really it's, you know, you, there's no, um, there, for whatever reason, they couldn't get any other evidence. How do you know when to trust 
the witness who's testifying against someone. Well, that's a, yeah, it's a big problem. I mean, and there is a tendency on the part of many people just because somebody says something and they say it with a lot of detail and confidence and emotion that it must have happened. But in fact, um, false memories can have those same characteristics. People can be confident and detailed and even emotional about things that never happened. So if you want to be sure, you're, you're, you, you, you've got to look for some kind of independent corroboration. It's, it's a difficult situation for a trier of fact. Um, and we do recognize the fact that many situations don't leave independent corroboration. So it's tough. And so if you have person A who, who has a wrong memory, uh, but they sound convincing, they, they are emotional, they do sound like they really, it really happened to them. Um, their ability to convince people, to your point, is, is pretty easy, right? And so it's hard, if you don't have the independent corroboration, it's really hard to combat it because um, to what you're saying is they might have explicit details, which would make it sound as if it really happened to them. Uh, so... So without any kind of independent source, you're, you're kind of stuck is what you're saying, it sounds like. Well, uh, yeah, you just have to recognize the difficulty. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure what the best solution is, but based on the work that um, psychological scientists have done in this area, the legal system has tried to uh, make recommendations for, for modifications of procedures or policies that can reduce the problem of false memories. Um, but you're still going to have you're still going to have true memories and false memories, and they're going to be hard to tell the difference. And as you grow older, do you become more susceptible to this or less susceptible? As a general rule, young children are, are more susceptible to suggestion. Um, the elderly may be somewhat more susceptible to. <clears throat> suggestion than say younger adults. Um, but this is basically our, our memories are malleable and we have to accept that fact and figure out how to live with it. So I mean, I mentioned the, the Sandusky case, which was interesting <laughs> because one of the arguments in the Sandusky case was um, a lot of this repressed memory was being used to, um, get the victims to kind of remember all the things that Jerry Sandusky had done to them, um, which was interesting to kind of listen to the podcast and uh, kind of go through that, that experience with uh, John Ziegler and the hundred hours he's recorded. Uh, but, but you worked on that case some. And so how do you, as a, as a expert on memory, determine when you think is a case worth pursuing that you can add credence to or is it something to where you think, okay, generally this is my thesis on memory and I can insert this into any case that they ask me about? Well, well generally, uh, when I get involved in a case, there's some kind of memory dispute. And there's often a situation where somebody's memory changed significantly over a period of time. There's a period of time where no, nothing happened. And then a later, uh, oh yeah, all these things all these horrible things happen. So what went on that could be responsible for that change? Some, some people might wanna to try to say, oh, well, I, I just retrieved some memories I hadn't thought about before. Well, maybe that happened, but maybe something highly suggestive uh, was, was going on in the life of the person that, that added things to their memory. 
and that they are they are now remembering things that are are a product of suggestion. So, if the memory is problematic, um, and you have a substantial change, like you know, you, you said something happened on January first when it's cold, and then later you said July third when it's warm. Um, is that an indicative? Is that is that a sign, or does it or that that maybe there's someone that doesn't really have a memory, or is it just that our memories are faulty and we could be off that by six seven months like that? It really, I think it it depends on what the change hmm. uh, is and how significant it is. But people, I mean, you know, the one famous case I worked on, a woman claimed that she saw her father kill her best friend when she was eight years old and that she repressed the memory for this murder and for all kinds of other horrible things that happened to her. Um, originally, when she came up with the memory, she said that uh, they picked up the murder, uh, the victim in the morning and that her sister was in the car as well. And when she learned later on that the murder victim didn't disappear until the afternoon, she just changed her memory. I mean, she just uh, move move the memory to the afternoon and it, it's just an example of how um people can can modify their memory when they get uh, some new information right it's, it's, and so you look at that as saying it's just a modification but it's not necessarily definitive on whether or not the original memory was partially right or wholly right or wholly wrong right and so, yeah, that would make the problem to unpack that even even harder because they, you know, you, you, <laughs> if the memory can be right but wrong on a, on, a, on a key detail, then it's really hard to determine when they're telling the truth or not. Yeah, okay, you use the word truth. And, and the kind of thing I study is not whether people are telling the truth or lying. This is not a deliberate lie. When people pick up suggestive information or they suggest things to themselves, um, they're not they're not lying they 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 come to believe it and they they've convinced themselves so if you take someone like oj simpson or you know i don't know pick insert big famous killer here is it possible for them to do the opposite um so let's just for the sake of this podcast assume oj's guilty uh is it possible for oj to then undo the memory of the killing where he doesn't believe it anymore it's a little harder to erase memories, but but I, I can certainly imagine the situations where people can convince themselves that they didn't do something that they might have actually done. And it could happen either with an external suggestion or maybe you could con con convince yourself. Mm. And so you, you, you've used the term repressed memory here. Um, what are you, What is your general thoughts? Maybe unpack a little bit on detail of what the, the proper definition of that is but then you know, what are your thoughts on that as um you know something that, that society how should we review the thoughts of repressed memories well I'll, I'll tell you the idea of repression is that you can take a whole collection of horrific awful traumatic experiences being raped for a decade for example you can banish them into the unconscious be completely unaware that these happen to you until you go into say therapy and now you some processes are done on you and you uh, have some pristine uh, recollection of these experiences and that this happens by some process that is beyond ordinary forgetting and remembering. 
So this is this is this phenomenon of, of repression, massive repression, is what Richard McNally, the Harvard clinical psychology professor, researcher, has called folklore. There really isn't credible scientific support for the idea that, that our memories are working like this. This doesn't mean people can't not think about something for a long time and be reminded of it or not think about something awful and be reminded of it. Of course that happens. And memory scientists understand that a retrieval cue could bring something to mind, but that's ordinary forgetting and remembering. And that's not what's being claimed in these cases. Right. Yeah. So I had, um, right after high school, one of my good friends died in a car wreck and obviously for, and I ended up working right after that within a year, right next to where he used to live. And so, you know, for the first few months of the wreck, you're, you're kind of sad going through all that. And then you kind of forget about it, but then working next to where he lived, I'll have all these really random memories like, Oh, because that'd be something that would trigger, you know, a thought of him because his apartment was, you know, half a mile down the, down the road. Um, and so it'd be hard for me to imagine something like that, which isn't as traumatic as some of the things we described, but being able to, to repress the memory of him dying and how sad that was and the funeral. Now that's been, you know, 20 years almost now. I don't think about that often though. Right. So, so I see what you're saying, which is you have something very bad and you just completely shut it off um, is not the same as you don't think about it every day. Um, but you, you're cognitively aware if you wanted to think about it, that it's there. You don't need suggestion. I just can I wanted to think about him. I can think about him. Right. And I'm sorry you had to go through that, but that's, you know, but what you're describing is a perfectly normal, understandable, right. common experience when somebody has had uh, something traumatic happen to them. Yeah. And so this is one of the things I, was, I wanted to ask you about because, um, so, you know, if you go to grandma's house or grandpa's house, they always had a smell. So if I walk in now in a room and I smell like the old spice, old school cologne my grandpa used to wear, I'll think of him because it triggers a memory. The problem I would think with the uh, the memory repression stuff is shouldn't there be things to trigger these memories on their own? So it's not something, someone saying something to make you remember it, but there's, um, you know, a sign, a smell, a touch, uh, a sudden movement. Wouldn't that be part of the problem with having this re repressive memory theory? No, the, the problem with the repressed memory theory is it just hasn't been proven. <laughs> but but uh, and and what what has been proven is that people can have retrieval cues that can be smells or sounds or songs or or going to a high school reunion where you're having a conversation about the past that reminds people of, of sometimes unpleasant things that happen to them. Well, uh, you know, one day we might find the proof for massive repression. One day we might find it. I, my position is we, we shouldn't be throwing people in prison based on a unsupported um, kind of flimsy, unsupported, sure. um, scientific hypothesis well I, I guess what i'm asking maybe maybe this is what you're saying but to ascribe to the massive repressive theory you'd have to then the normal things that trigger memories for us on a daily basis a smell a touch uh, a random thought those would all have to go away um until these until it's being actively worked on for these people that's what you'd have to uh, uh, believe right because if I, no no uh, yeah the, the repression aficionados, anything goes, you know, whatever, anything goes. They, 
they can they can accommodate anything. The retrieval queue might work, it might not work. I mean, uh, 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 so somebody could, for example, find a smell particularly offensive, but still not get the memory back. That's what they might say. I got you. And that that might be a symptom of of something. It sounds hard to believe. <laughs> I'm just it's it yeah. sounds it, it sounds hard to believe that that that, that and that that's one of the things I enjoyed about the. <laughs> Listen to the Sandusky stuff was is that a lot of those um, victims were having repressed memories and kind of dealing with dealing with that. And it's oh, yeah, the whole role of therapy and repressed memories, uh, you know, has not been fully appreciated in the Sandusky case. But how about the how about the fact that Ziegler talked about you know the fake um, the fake victim who went into the mm. lawyer and went into the, mm -hmm. the therapist and, mm -hmm. oh yeah, they're sure you were really a victim, but a completely made up story. And uh, the, the lawyer and therapist were apparently just more than willing to run with it. Yeah. And, and even evidence of them shaping the story to, to make it better. Yeah. And for, for listeners, again, it's like, it's, it's like a hundred hours. I think John's done. So it's called with the benefit of hindsight. We'll link to that in the podcast. It's a, um, it's a journey. <laughs> it's a journey. Really? I remember listening to it going, wow. Okay. Every time you think something, you know, has kind of hit peak weird, weird stuff, you know, th there was something else he'd bring out. And then, you know, you have uh, the president getting charged and convicted on a crime that's not even the books. And it was just, it was just, just, just craziness. But, from your perspective, you talk about dealing with memory. You have to be kind of bold, if you will, to step into a case like that, right? That's not popular. That's not going to win you a lot of hearts and minds, I'm sure. Um, and so to kind of get in there on that, do you consider that when you're trying to research these cases? Uh, I've, sometimes people are so close-minded. I, I don't know what happens to people when, when, when it's an unpopular defendant, or, or particularly if it's a sex case, a sex abuse or sexual harassment case, suddenly people want to throw out the Constitution, throw out the, you know, innocent till proven guilty, uh, throw out the idea that even unpopular amongst us deserve to have a defense and just find the person guilty because someone says, uh, this is what I remember. Um, it, it's kind of shocking to me. And, and then they, they like to get really mad at anybody who participates in the defense of such an individual. I, I've been quite shocked at the reactions of uh, sometimes otherwise fairly intelligent uh, people. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you look at how the judicial system works, there, there's plenty of things that you can see that are very weird, very suspect, and, and things that you should, um, you wouldn't want happening to you if you were on trial. <laughs> and so um, supporting a good defense is something that we should all be in favor of. And, and to your point, I think it's, um, especially with like a Sandusky, where it's very much a sex, you know, a child sex abuse case is what's going on. You're like, oh, wow. Well, he obviously must be guilty because of people coming forward. And so it makes you very, very leery to, Kind of push back on that narrative because why would someone lie about that right and and people forget that uh, well just take one one project in this country the innocence project in new york where more than 350 people have been proven to be innocent of crimes they were convicted of by dna testing 
they might have spent five, 10, 15, 20 years in prison, and now they're finally uh, proven to be innocent. And the major cause of those wrongful convictions is faulty human memory. Somebody, uh, somebody's memory implicated the wrong person. So, you know, even when you, you point that out to people, oh, I like to point that out in my classes so that, that my students can appreciate the importance of understanding the psychology of memory and what scientists have revealed about memory. Um, but I wish the rest of the world would also give more thought to that, that reality. So, so how do we handle stuff as a, as a society, like the, the Me Too movement, where you have this big debate over, you know, um, sexual abuse, um, sexual um, harassment in the workplace. Uh, and a lot of times these incidents are one-on-one, there's no one else around. Um, how, how do we handle those things? Well, that, this, is even, this is an even harder situation because finally, you know, we are, you know, paying some good attention to some very bad behavior that's gone on in, in the workplace and other uh, environments for people. And people are listening to the stories of, of, of people in the Me Too world. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, it's not, it, it's not the time, it's not the cultural moment uh, to get people to have any space to think about the fact that there may be some wrongful convictions and false accusations. Um, it's a little, a little bit of a setback right now for the wrongful conviction, false accusation uh, worry. So are you of the belief, um, you know, if you have two or three or four witnesses, is there a certain number at which you say, okay, hey, at this point, we can reasonably assume if they generally saw the same thing um, that we can trust these people? Is it because um, I would assume the more people that you that claim to have seen an incident, um, the more trustworthy, generally speaking, you can believe that, that thing happened? Well, that might be a general rule, but you want to make sure they're independent. I mean, I've, I've seen situations where, you know, six or seven people misidentify a Catholic priest as being the robber when, when, because they were exposed to similar suggestion, but, but he was innocent. So you, you, you can have, yeah, sure, it makes sense that the more people uh, who have seen something, the more comfortable you feel believing that it actually happened, but you've got to be, be sure that those are, those people are independent and that they haven't all been created uh, in the same way. Well, yeah, and that kind of causes the problem there because in the case of the Catholic priest robber, which I, I know nothing about, but just to kind of tease this out a little bit here, um, it would probably be the same cops or detectives who'd be talking to the same witnesses. The witnesses might've all spoke to each other right after it happened um, you know, they may, they all could have read the same newspaper. So you kind of have this bubble that's being created and the narrative is being pushed forward and they have, they're having a hard time escape it. Is that what you're getting at? Well, that kind of thing. If you want to read about that priest, his name was Father Pagano. Uh, and you probably can Google him and read it. That was a famous case some time ago, a little earlier on when I was just, you know, getting involved in these issues. Right. But would you say that, that those are the type of things that would happen? We say that they have to be independent. The, the, it's hard to keep them independent because they're talking to the same cop. They're talking. Right. To them, right. Right. Or they're, they're, they're shown the same bad lineup or, you know, some, some, something goes on like that. 
So how then, so walk me through this. There's an alleg- there's a crime committed or an allegation of a crime committed. Um, what are some high level best practices to deal with this then? A lot has been written about the application of the science to improving practices. And so there's some things that can happen, for example, at the police station. Um, so for example, um, you want to have a you're in a, you want to have a lineup to see if a witness can identify a, a, a perpetrator. Who conducts that lineup? In the past, it was usually just the, the lead investigator for the case, the, the main cop, but that's not a good idea. You want somebody to conduct that lineup who doesn't know who the suspect is. Because if the person, if the investigator knows who the suspect is, they can even inadvertently, accidentally cue the witness as to who the, who the, who the suspect is. They can give feedback after an identification is made that can contaminate the witness. So if, if the investigator doesn't know who the suspect is, that's just a much better situation. Just like the, the doctor who's doing a clinical trial doesn't know whether the patient got the real drug or got a placebo. So they can't influence the, the behavior and the outcome. So that's just one example in the police station. What do you, also, what do you say to a witness? Do you give them an unbiased instruction? What, who else do you put in the lineup? What, what should they look like? Uh, what characteristics? It's not, it's not so simple as just find some people who resemble mm. the suspect. It's, it, it's much more complicated than that. And these best practices have been written about and suggested and are now being incorporated into police procedure to increase accurate information and reduce inaccurate information. Then then we can ask, well, what what could go on in a trial? And in a trial, uh, even the National Academy of Sciences has recommended better education of jurors, educate them either through jury instructions or through expert testimony about, about the nature of memory. So we're seeing sometimes those two methods of trying to educate jurors so they can come to a better decision. What about um, the repetitiveness of getting the story from a witness? You know, so the cops will go through it with them two, three, four times. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Oh, well, I mean, in general, uh, you know, having a, a story told at different points of time can be informative. Certainly, that that's how we sometimes see these inconsistency and dramatic changes in somebody's story, and that is that's a useful uh, clue that something um, something troublesome might be happening. When people repeat their stories over and over, though, they do tend to become a little bit more fluent in telling the story. It comes across as a little as more confident. They can therefore be more persuasive. They're not somehow more accurate. They're just a little more persuasive in telling the story. And that, um, that can lead to a different issue. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm thinking through this here. It, it, it's, a con- it's a very convoluted process because not only do you have the witnesses, then you have the detectives thinking about, you know, how did they collect the evidence? What was the procedure that they used or the crime 
tech lab that goes out there because all those things can be brought into question. So you have their memories, which are, you know, malleable as well. Well, that's why having a recording is sometimes a good idea. Then you don't have to worry uh, so much about the memory of the person asking the questions. So you said you, you mentioned a minute ago, you have your, your students there. So how often do they come up to you and say, professor, that's not how it happened. <laughs> You're not remembering correctly. <laughs> um, I don't know. Sometimes people, you know, I've, I've, I've been, I've been known to develop, you know, false memories or disputed memories. Um, I, you know, my memory's not perfect and, 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 and nobody's is, uh, even people who've been studied on my campus by the neuroscientists, there is a group of people with sensational memories. They remember just about everything they did every day of their adult life. Even their memory is susceptible to contamination. Yeah, what is up with that, that total recall or what do they call it? Memory? Like, how does one achieve such a thing? Uh, well, I don't know how they got that way, but um, the neuroscientists on my campus here who study uh, call, they call them HSAMs, H-S-A-M, highly superior autobiographical memory. And yes, they, they, they've been studied, they've been written about, they've been featured on 60 Minutes and other <laughs> uh, news programs. Um, they're pretty remarkable, but they're, even their memories aren't, aren't perfect. Well, that's good to know they have some flaws. <laughs> that's good to know, yes. On, on people like that, can you... Um... Trick, trick them, or if you want to, could you implement? Yes, that, that was the study that we did. We cooperated with the neuroscientists and to see whether we could deliberately contaminate the memories of these HSAMs, these superior memory people. And we found that there, it was as easy to contaminate them as with, say, age match controls. Okay, so there, there, there is, uh, they can be tricked just like the rest of us. That's exactly. that's good to know. Okay, uh, a couple more questions. We'll get you out of here today. Um, I know we just had some breaking news before the show started about the Maxwell trial. You were a witness in that. Can you talk about that? Not talk about that. I don't know what your status is. Uh, well, because- I did. I, I was a, a an expert witness in the case. My testimony was very very general. It, it was about what, what we know about memory and memory distortion. It didn't mention any particular people. It didn't even mention memory for sex. It didn't mention any specific suggestive things that happened in that in the case. I, I do know that there I happen to know, although didn't talk about it, that there was some significant changes in in some of the stories uh, from you know one point in time to what somebody was saying, let's say 15 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting if there are any um, post-trial interviews with the jurors to see whether they worried about that at all. Yeah, one of the one of the um, reporters I was listening to uh, as a podcast, and he was discovering the trial. He said that he, in his, he was kind of critical of, of some of the questions that the defense was asking. Uh, that they didn't, he felt like they didn't really do a good job of uh, understanding what you're trying to bring to the table. Do you, did, I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't heard the testimony, but that was his take. But generally speaking, do you find when you come to do trials that there are, uh, the attorneys that are bringing you in understand? the questions to ask, if you will, and does the DA, I guess is who you're, would you, I guess you just called it by the defense, does the DA understand what you're trying to argue for and how to a- attack, I guess is the right word, um, your testimony? Well, sometimes the, sometimes the judge has limited the testimony. 
So an attorney might want to do a lot more, but the judge has limited the testimony. It, said, it says it, it can be very, um, only a skeleton, you know, very um, pure science, nothing more, no discussion of applicability to the case. So um, the lawyers are kind of stuck with a, a, the judge's ruling and maybe they would like to do more sometime, but they're not permitted to. What's it like testifying in these big, high profile cases do you get nervous or you're like ah it's another day at the office because you know you, you, you it's almost like watching a in this case or other cases um you know these are national news stories so do you do you enjoy it or is it kind of like ah i wish i didn't well, have to do that. some of it I, I i like um some things about it and i don't like other things i've already told you what i don't like i don't like the closed-minded people who sometimes forget that we live in, in America with a constitution and even unpopular people deserve to have a defense. I don't like that at all. I, I do like um, having access to very, very interesting information about what really happened. Mm. Because out there in the real world, what people have is sensationalized media coverage about what really happened. But when you're working on a case and you get to see the FBI interviews, what questions were asked and what answers were given. And, and you, you have so much more information and it, it can be quite fascinating. And then it is true that my students like to hear about some of these, um, these cases and are, are fascinated. And it, I, I think it, it makes their whole learning experience more interesting to them. So there's good and there's bad. Okay. All right. Well, any upcoming books or projects or high profile cases we should be watching for you to appear on? Well, I can't talk to you about my future cases <laughs> right now. So, so I had to, I had and, to ask. And, and, and people don't, you know, people don't have to buy my books. I have a whole bunch of scientific articles on my University of California Irvine website that people can just help themselves to for free. Okay. And we'll link to, um, there's a Ted talk and then there's also, you did a show with the American psychiatric association or something. It's about a 20 minute talk. That was really interesting. So I'll find that and link to that as well. Well, this has been great. Thank you for doing this. Oh, on a sure, holiday. Ryan. Um, nice speaking with you and you, you have a good rest of the day. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye.